0: Hi and welcome to the Dying Task podcast. I'm Georgia Fitzpatrick. So I have been sitting on a secret for a couple of weeks. My secret is out and my secret was that I am heading back to cover an Olympics in person this summer in Paris. That's a good one, right? So if you're new to the show, I've had this interesting professional side gig for most of my career in that I have covered the Olympics since the year 2000 alongside a partner, same person the entire time, photographer Mike Domalog. We started out as a team in Sydney, Australia, and the last one that we did in person was back in 2018 in Pyeongchang, South Korea. That was a cold one. But then came COVID and all kinds of Olympic weirdness. Actually, a lot of weirdness in general, global weirdness. And so Tommy and I worked the next two Olympics from Sacramento since our company was not really traveling during that time. So anyways, we were asked to go back and help lead a team of Olympic reporters and photographers and producers in Paris. And we're very excited about that, very energized by that, I would say. So we're already working on our coverage, got some cool projects underway. Um, but one of the, the things that I love about working on this side assignment is the backstories. I love the backstories of how people get to a podium or close to a podium. And I love finding out about all the people in their lives, including coaches. Because a good coach, no matter what you do, will motivate, will inspire. And I bring this all up because I have a great underdog story for you today on Dying to Ask. We like talking to people on this show who have figured out how to tap into their inner talents to seize opportunities to better themselves or maybe cross off a big goal. But today we're talking about a guy who figured out how to tap into someone else's talent to help them achieve big goals. And this guy was a natural at bringing out the best in others and therefore in bringing out the best in himself. His name was Sherm Chavor, chances are you have not heard of him. So there's a guy named Bill George who has a new book out about Sherm. It's called Victory in the Pool. Sherm Chavor was a legendary swim coach. Decades before Katie Ledecky and Michael Phelps, there were names like Debbie Meyer, Jeff Float, Mike Burton, Mark Spitz, and Sue Peterson. Sherm was their coach at Arden Hills Swim and Tennis Club, which still exists if you're not from the Sacramento area. His athletes went from Sacramento obscurity to winning 20 Olympic medals in the 60s and 70s. Now, on paper, Sherm's career makes absolutely no sense. Sherm was not a championship swimmer himself, but he was a guy who was really good at getting people to do things. He was a motivator, an inspirational type person, a master marketer, and these days, we would probably call him an influencer. His can-do attitude didn't even begin to cut what he created and then eventually would go on to pull off. Now, a little controversial at times, too. (laughs) Wasn't all perfect. But for the times, he did pretty amazing things and thought very, very differently. So in this new book, Victory in the Pool, the author, Bill George, is giving you the story behind this story if you like underdogs you will love this interview if you like stories of people who pull things off because they think a little differently than the rest of us you will love this interview if you love the olympics you will love this interview if you are not into swimming you will still love this interview i promise because this book and this show today not about swimming. This is really about building community. So Bill George is a documentary film producer and a writer. He has experience in politics, corporate marketing, and journalism. He's covered the World Series, Super Bowl. He's done work for ESPN. He actually worked at KCRA back in the day, my employer at one point. And when he reached out and said, hey, I have this new book. Do you want to talk about it? I was like, yeah. Yes, I sure do. So today we're doing just that. Today we have one of the greatest sports stories you have likely never heard before. So I really hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. And please check out Bill's new book, Victory in the Pool. It is available, as they say, where books are sold. Bill George is my guest on this week's Dying Task. Have you ever wondered, how did they do that? I do all the time. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and Dying to Ask is the podcast that gets me off a TV news set and into candid conversations with authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and influencers I have been dying to talk to. Soak up the motivation that comes from learning how other people live their lives, how they take an idea or a goal, they follow through, and they pull it off. And maybe along the way, I'll get some answers to questions you've been dying to ask. Bill, thanks for joining us on the Dying to Ask podcast. Glad to be here. I'm thrilled to, to get to talk to you about your book. You know, I'm a big Olympic geek. And uh, this is the book I wish I had written. (laughs) It's (laughs) really wonderful. And it has so much great history, not only about the sport of swimming, but also about um, some of the athletes that I've had the the luxury of getting to cover over the years as they've remembered some of their, you know, Olympic moments, everybody from, you know, Mike Burton and Jeff Float and Debbie Meyer and their legendary coach, Sherm Shavur. And that is who Victory in the Pool is really about.
1: Well, Sherm Shavur not his real name, is uh, <laughs> really the, uh, the senior that holds the whole thing together. He comes to Sacramento after being in the Army Air Force uh, right after the war. And he gets he's a teacher and he gets a job moonlighting at the Sacramento YMCA. There it's a very diverse uh, community. That's where if you can't, if you're not white, frankly, you go yeah. to because that's like the only place you can, one of the few places you can go to to play basketball or swim. So he gets put in charge of the pool and he starts pushing these kids to swim. And one of them, Takaseri, a 12 year old, out of the, uh, came out of the camps, the internment camps in World War II, just he notices this kid can really swim. So Takaseri, long story short, turns out to be an AAU champion. And by the time he's 20, the captain of the University of California swim team. So he just had a way of noticing talent. He used to say, he didn't care what your strokes look like. All he was looking for was guts. He yeah. wanted guts to swimmers. And somehow he picked the kids and realized which ones were going to give him the performances that he demanded.
0: What, what drew you to writing about this guy? Because most people, you know, if you mentioned swimming to them, they know Phelps, you know, <laughs> like the average yeah. person, person knows Katie Ledecky. They know Michael Phelps. They know kind of our modern day Olympians. What drew you to writing about Sherm?
1: Well, I grew up in that era and uh, was, of course, not an Olympic athlete. But I remember Debbie Meyer and uh, Mike Burton and, and of course, Mark Spitz, who's a uh, people don't, a lot of people don't even realize he's from Arden Hills and swam there and was trained there. So, actually, my wife went to Rio Americano High School, and I go to reunions with her. And you know, when you're the spouse at the reunion, you sit around twiddling your thumbs or trying to oh, yeah. do. <laughs> so, talking to a couple of people, and they start telling these stories oh, you know, Debbie Meyer and, you know, Burton and these, and I'm like, they all went to this school. Now, Burton didn't, but Debbie and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, did, no, Jeff didn't either. Well, Debbie did, and I started getting interested in, well, who are these kids? How did they do that? They're all from this area, from one area, the Arden Hills area. So I just thought, well, that's interesting. And that, you know, worked in news at and sports at KCRA, and uh, had uh, met chivor you know, briefly a few times, and kind of, he just had a presence about him, right? He'd walk into the room and kind of suck the air out <laughs> of it. So, um. It took a long time. I got on news and other things. But when I had some time, I just started looking into it. And I thought, first of all, I just wanted to clear up some uh, misconceptions. Like, did Mark Spitz actually swim at Arden Hills? Uh, Where did Debbie come from? Uh, Because you hear all these kind of rumors and legends. So that's what got me going. And then as I got into it, I realized there's really a fascinating story here. And um, so I'm looking up Sherm Chavor. And some of the things aren't making sense to me in terms of dates and ages and things. And I'm like, Well, that's strange. Well, then finally, I went to about halfway through, I went and interviewed his two daughters. And the first thing they said to me is, well, you know, his name wasn't Shurm Shavor. And I almost fell off my chair. Like what? Yeah. well,
0: And that's in the first couple of pages of the book. And and I did pretty much fall off my chair. I'm like, what? (laughs) And then as I started hearing more of the background and like putting it to the time in history when all this was going on, I'm like, Wow, isn't that something? Because these days you'd never be able to do anything like no, that the stuff no. that he did because the internet would out you.
1: Right. <laughs> you know? right
0: exactly. Like we have a, a paper trail that you wouldn't let you do it. Um, so why don't we go back a little bit to to you know his name wasn't Sherm Chavor. So, so where did that all come from?
1: They don't know. It's interesting. I mean, he uh, his father had been a sugarcane worker in Hawaii before he brought the family to California, I think there are are seven or eight kids, no one's really sure. And um, there were stories that maybe somebody in the family had committed a heinous crime. And so he wanted to change his last name. Well, I searched all the papers I could find and records. I never found anybody with his name Ezekiel Correa or the last name of Correa committing a heinous crime. So I don't know, maybe maybe people are more sensitive in those days or something, but I don't know. The only thing I know is he picked the name Sherm Shavor Sherm, the real Sherm Chavar, and there was one, was a football star at UCLA who was about five years older than our Sherm Shavor. And I think that he was reading the exploits of this guy. He was a UCLA football star, All-American, big, tough guy, noted for his toughness. And I think that, like many kids, maybe he just thought, well, there's who I want to be. And maybe his own surroundings weren't what they wanted to be. And so he just said, that's who I'm going to be. I'm going to pick that name. And I'm going to live to that. And he really did. If anybody that I've ever read about, and I mean anybody, recreated themselves, he did. He, As I said, he came in this poor background. Not only did he was he a great Olympic coach, he built Arden Hill Swimming Tennis Club mm-hmm. by himself, pretty much. He raised the money. He did all these incredible things. Uh, US Olympic coach of the women's team twice. And of course, we talked about all the gold medal winners and, and famous athletes that he coached. He just did what he had to do. And uh, as I said, he created a new persona, Sherm Shavor, the great uh, swim coach.
0: Which is funny because you can't imagine him not having that name because it's such a beautiful, distinct, charismatic name, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, it is. And it was funny because you talked about maybe outing him. Well, he did kind of get outed. The the real Sherm Shavor was a high school principal, became a high school principal in Burbank, in Southern California sent a letter in the LA Times and basically he said, look, um, I don't know what's going on, but all my friends are kidding me about being a moonlighting swimming coach. I'm, I'm a principal down here. I don't know anything <laughs> about coaching swimming. And I don't know who this other Shem Shavor is. So the LA Times got the letter and it ended up at the B and the B actually asked him about it. And he still didn't back down. He didn't say, no, you got me, or, yeah, my name's Ezekiel Correa. And I just thought, so, no, no, I never said I was a football star at UCLA, a big star. I, I said I backed up the line at UCLA. Well, that wasn't the issue, but he got away. <laughs> and uh, and UCLA was asked about it, and they, they said basically, because Sherm had sent Mike Burton to UCLA, he was got a great, great swimmer, won many NCAA titles, and they liked him. You know, they recruit kids, and they want to have a good relationship with the coaches. And they said, well, uh, you know, Sherm's a great guy, a great supporter of UCLA f- athletics. Uh, we love him. Uh, but no, you didn't go here. <laughs> Never. Wow, that's great. That way.
0: <laughs> what a great story. So the other thing that's kind of interesting, and correct me where I'm wrong, he didn't really have a big swimming background. Because these days, any big coach either was a big athlete at some point, or was at least in that world. From what I could tell, he wasn't.
1: Well, you know, he, he was not certainly had never competitively swum as a youngster or anything. And apparently, like I said, he was went to the Y and did this as a moonlighting. He'd been a, uh, he was a teacher and he was going to pick up a few extra bucks supervising the program. And I think they just threw him into the swim club. Hey, go, go handle the pool. So he did. And, uh, but no. And so what did he do? Like other people would go, say oh they try to hide it maybe oh yeah you know, he bragged about it he said i'm the only swim coach who doesn't know how to swim so he even <laughs> took, he did know how to swim <laughs> right you know but he took it to another level so he's just you know would tout this as, and so you read newspaper stories sherm shavor the only swim coach who can't how to doesn't know how to swim leading his and you know as a journalist now there's a story there's a story. So he did it on purpose and you see that Wait. again. The guy was a master psychologist and a master public relations person. He was.
0: I was going to say like, you know, these days we would call it um, you know, master of a brand. He understood yeah. the concept of brand and building that excitement about it. He was so far ahead of his time um and and his methods were really kind of funny. He knew how to get attention and that attention did good things for his athletes,
1: absolutely, yeah, and you know? he would use the press to send messages to them in the 1972 Olympics. If you can believe that, so here they are, the pressure is unbelievable. And people today, I mean, the Olympics are still great, but in those days, first of all, you had far fewer sports, and the pressure was ramped up because of the competition between the Soviet Union and the United States, very, really the East and, the, and Eastern countries and the Western countries. It was a test of societal systems, economic systems. That's how big it is. So they're going to 72 in Munich. The pressure's really on the US swimmers because they're the ones that can give us the big advantage over the Russian and Eastern Europeans. That's where we had the real advantage going in. Well, he's sitting there with Mark Spitz in an interview with Sports Illustrated. Spitz, at this time, is the greatest swimmer in the world. He comes into Munich in 72, having run the table, uh, recovering from his disastrous uh, uh, meet in, uh, in 68 in Mexico. So they're and by this
0: point, and by this point, he is no longer training with Sherm because he had moved to Santa Clara. Is that correct? Oh no, no,
1: no. He had come back from Santa Clara.
0: Oh, he had come. Oh, so he had come back to be back with okay.
1: Yeah. So I can get into that whole story. It was well uh, let
0: let, let me just just real quickly. So Spitz was a kid when he was training at Arden Hills. And the way I remember it is his dad got a transfer to right. the Bay Area. And right. so that's why he started. And Santa Clara was the other big hotbed in California for swimmers, right. And so he trained in Santa Clara, but then he and Sherm reconnect.
1: Exactly. So what happened was, and and see, this was interesting too. And I've read this and heard this. Well, he left Arden Hills as a 14-year-old because he figured out he had to go to Santa Clara because George Haynes, the coach there, was a mm-hmm. legendary coach. Uh was a much better coach than Sherm. And he really felt, his father felt like he needed to be there. Well, that's not true. His father did get transferred. There were two other swim clubs he went to before he ended up at Santa Clara. And it was Sherm Chavar who had stayed in touch with his father, especially. Uh, and his father was very hard to deal with, very demanding man and short yes. temper, you know, just push, push, push. Like kind of Chiv- legendary. Yeah, kind of legendary. Yep. Anyway, it was Chavar who told us. And, his-
0: and not unusual for Olympic champions, by the way. No, exactly. Like or any,
1: any great athletes. Really. Yes. Pretty domineering parents sometimes. Anyway, so it was after that that he ended up at with George Haynes at Santa Clara and swam there. That's where he set his first world record. That's where he first came to prominence. Then what happened was, well, he got into it with some of the swimmers over there, apparently, and they're not apparently, they're, they were contentious. He was young. They were older. Uh, he got into, especially with Don Shoalander, who was a great, great American hero swimmer of 60, 64 and looking to come to 68 and, and really run the table. Well, they got into it. And it, Haynes had a tough time managing the relationship between those two. Uh, Spitz claimed there had been um, anti-jewish sentiment in the pool at Santa Clara that he'd been taunted for being Jewish uh, that part of it they go to the uh, U.S Olympic uh, trials and then they get through that they go to a training camp and that's where Spitz says he was harassed verbally for being a Jew and uh, talk about that whole story in the book mm-hmm. well long story short uh, Spitz bombs 68 uh two gold medals and two silvers not too bad but they'd expected him to win six or seven gold medals no uh, individual event gold medal so it was everybody and he got crushed in the press it was brutal I mean I think the presses can be rough today but the stuff back then they really let him have it and um, it was something so anyway and then in
0: the meantime 68 you've got debbie Yeah, killing it. Debbie becomes the face of those games swimmer wise, the girl swimmer, the girl swimmers, as they called them back then. Um, and Sherm is the one who gets the credit during that, right?
1: Sherm gets the credit, and uh, not only uh, Debbie but other other Arden Hill swimmers well. And um, Sue Sue Peterson, Mm -hmm. people don't remember at all here in Sacramento when she was 10 years old. The newspaper used to run stories saying. Sue wins 100 yard. She was known by her first name. Right. 68, Yeah. And I write in the book how kind of how Debbie wins her three and Sue wins two gold, two silver. But a lot goes into that. A lot of machinations, a lot of coaching things. And it's really interesting to see how that all happened. And then today, Sue's largely forgotten. And Debbie's still not say a household name. I wish she was more remembered. But justifiably is still a huge name. So anyway, getting back to Spitz, and they, um, uh, the next year he's still at Santa Clara now, but he goes to Indiana University. He graduates, and we just like kids. He's okay, done with that. Although he, they still they, he, the college swimming season is very short, mm-hmm. so the swimmers all usually come used to come back to their home pools and train. Well, he went back there, and then he told uh, George Haynes, he said, "I'm not going to swim in the National AAU's. I'm, I'm, I need a, I need time off this summer." and i'm not going to do that well they a big blow up and haynes ends up firing the spitz family from santa clara not only mark but it was also his sister who was a great swimmer and basically tells his father you know i'm done with you guys get out of here that's how brutal it was so huh. uh they go back to sacramento And uh, he goes back to to Chivore, so he's swimming at Indiana in the school year, and then with Sherm during the summers. And and Sherm's really the one now training him again, not just physically, but more important, mentally, because Spitz was carrying a huge burden from 68. And every time he'd go in a meeting, it'd be, you know, Mark Burden, who disappointed in 68, and, you know, is he a sham? Can he come back from that? And Shavor psychologically got in his head and got him through it. And, and Spitz actually developed some phobias, and he admits it in his own book. He was a hypochondriac, and he says, you know, every little thing needs to bother me, he has to get. So there they are in '72, going into the the weeks, the week before the, the going week before the Olympics, they're going into the swimming events, and their dinner. And a, uh, Spitz is there, and he says to Shavoor, "You know, Shurim, I'm not, I'm not really feeling good. I, you know, God, I can't." I, this top. I, I just can't get over it. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. Maybe I should sit out the first meet, whatever, on and on. And, on. So, and, and then he goes, and show them these pills I'm taking. Uh, they're making me dizzy. And without missing a beat, in front of two reporters, Chavor says, no, Mark, dizzier. So he just sent a shot to him like, well, you've got to toughen up, kid. And, and he did. I mean, that was amazing. He kind of snapped out of it. And then, of course, went on to win the seven gold medals in Munich.
0: Wow. That is such a good story. Um, when I have, primar- most of the stories that I've heard have come uh, from interviewing Debbie over the years. And I like, I listen to the way she talks about him as a coach and I can't help as the parent of a teen swimmer think, There is no way that stuff would fly these days because there were some things that Sherm Chavreau did that were considered very revolutionary that we just don't do anymore. So I'll start with like the technical part of it, the distances. His swimmers routinely would swim like 15,000 yards every (laughs) single day. I can't even imagine that.
1: Yeah, that's what everybody says today. And I know it was I can't even
0: imagine. We would never do that today.
1: And and I think a lot of it went to um, Mike Burton. And again, here's a kid that was 12 years old and involved in a bike accident, very painful. He could hardly walk. He, he walked to the limp most of his life. And Shavoor said, here's a kid that took all the pain I dished out to him and more. Maybe it was because of the accident. He was just used to coping with it. So, he, so what would happen when a new kid would show up at the pool, and this is Spitz, this is Debbie. This is all of them. They would show up at the pool. Chavor would throw them in. And there's all these great swimmers. Because they had, we're not talking about just about the Olympians, all the college swimmers he had, sure. just tons of them. And you get thrown in that pool. And suddenly you realize you, wherever you'd come from, you're probably pretty good. And now you're just getting killed. And these kids are just killing you. And um, you just see the work ethic they have. So you got to swim and, and, and keep up. And pretty soon, Debbie within a couple of months, really, is almost is giving Burton a run for his money in the pool. And that's the kind of ability and also desire she had. And uh, she was really a tough cookie.
0: So there was the physical part of of making them work past the point of being un- well past being uncomfortable to deal with those those stressful situations. There was also the way you talk to them, which again, you'd never get away with these days. But he had this like really gruff brusqueness that if you give him the grace of the time was not that unusual for the way a coach would talk to an athlete.
1: Yeah, well, a lot of those guys were World War II veterans because of the era, you know. And uh, you look at the great great coaches of the the era, Woody Hayes, Bo Schembechler, all these iconic, tough guy. And they were tough guys, man you know, as I wrote in the book, uh, after the war, some, I talk about California after the war and the rise of the swimming culture, really. And some critics said, well, you know, they're all reaching for the good life. They're grabbing for the good life. Well, yeah, they've been in the jungles of fighting the Japanese or yeah. the beaches on Normandy. <laughs> of course they're grabbing for the good life. Right. Uh, but they had a gruff patter about them. And, uh, I looked at, a uh, watched an old World War II uh, movie and, uh, it was filmed with actual veterans of the Battle of Baston and Bastogne in Nor- uh, the Battle of the Bulge. And they would say things like, hey, Jones, the next time you go up there, you want to put a little more mortar fire on that hill so the machine guns not shooting every one of us down? You know, could you guys move faster? What are you trying to do back there? And he would incorporate, Chabot would incorporate that same uh, pattern into his own coaching. And he'd be on them all the time. And uh, get going, what's wrong with you? Why are you sitting here? Debbie, what are you doing, waiting for a train? And it just never stopped. (laughs) But on the other hand, if they had personal problems or swelling problems, certainly, and you're dealing with teenagers here, right? It's funny, because when I'm writing it in, in my mind, I have to keep reminding myself, these are teenagers that he's dealing with. These aren't 22. Today, I think the average age for the US women's swim team is about 21. Back then it was 16, 15 and a half. So dealing with really, really young adolescents Uh, but he would find a way to get into their soul and their heart. And if they had a problem, he'd work it out. And, you know, it's not that big a deal. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. So constant confidence as well as constant goading was his formula. Yeah. It's not going to work today.
0: No. (laughs) Much of the 1960s would not work today. Right, right. Um, You know, one, one thing that I did not know as much about in reading the book was about some of the things that he did to facilitate swimmers having the opportunity so for example there were athletes who maybe they couldn't afford to pay for the right. coaching and the lessons right. and to be a part of the pool that he had built arden hills um, and he would find them jobs he would give them yep. jobs he would oh, let yeah. them work enough nothing he didn't if he found somebody who he thought he was talented who he believed in who he thought would like follow through he figured out a way to make it happen for them
1: absolutely and he even um, would take money out of his own pocket I think in 66, he and Mark Burton were at the Nationals and uh, Burton didn't, he was not from a rich family. His father was a truck driver. They had a struggle every time there was a road trip to find the money to send them to those road trips because there was no money at all for kids in those days. The rules, the amateur rules were very, very strict and Sherman would pull out money and buy him lunch or buy him dinner and get him through. But it's more important, I think that mentally he was so in tune with their, their, um, concerns and their worries. And, and that's a big about thing about coaching. And I mean, most coaches, and I love coaches, but if they're a coach, they go to a facility that the city runs or somebody else runs. Um, they work all day, work hard, and then they go home. Shavar owns the club. He's got to do all the administrative stuff, he and his wife. And it's just amazing, and he never, never stops. A friend of mine told me after I wrote the book, of course, said, "Oh yeah, it was a paper boy, I know. Do you love that?" Everybody comes I love it. Yeah. The stories out but the books that I was the paper boy in his neighborhood, and I show him, show saw him at four 30 every morning driving away to the club. So that's when he started his day, and he didn't get until late at night, and that's brutal. I mean, I don't think a lot of people can, or probably should do that, but that was a commitment that he had, and and. um, Uh, Jeff Float said the other day, you know, he was always on the phone and he was always talking. He was never listening. He was constantly (laughs) talking. So he didn't know what was going on. But after Debbie and Sue, after their 68 Olympic exploits, he was the one who was fielding all these requests from people around the world for them to go speak. And again, you had to be very careful. If you stepped over that line, they could get disqualified for life from the Olympics for taking the wrong anything that looked like an endorsement payment, even clothing. So he was running the traps on all that stuff. And it's just amazing the the time and work that he put in.
0: Well, and it was really the last um, of the amateur Olympians, like that period of time in the 60s and early 70s before kind of the superstars and television really changed the opportunities that were then available for these athletes, mainly male, you know, in the 70s. Um, and, it, you know, for for most of them, it was a remarkable experience, but it wasn't a cash cow. Yeah, <laughs> you know? they've, mo- they've all, for the most part, gone on to other lives and opportunities and jobs.
1: Right, exactly. And um, Debbie has always said, especially because what is it, NIL, name, image, likeness? What would yes. her NIL have been 1968? Can she you was cute. Message. She was cuddly. She was quotable. She was magnetic personality. She, she said the darndest things to the press all the time. She was one time. Still goes, does. Still does. Sports Illustrated came out to do a story on, on her, she and Sue Peterson at the, in Arden Hills. And they're sitting at the pool. And they said, well, Debbie, isn't this kind of getting old hat for you? You're winning all these championships. And she turns to them and she says, well, you know, boys, in my line of work, gold medals in the Olympics is the real challenge, is the real job. So
0: so, it's funny that you I I've read that article many times and I pulled it up. So I'm going to read uh, if you'll humor the me only me, summer of their
1: lives, right?
0: Is that it? Sure is the only year of their lives. The I've got it. Else. Let me just for everybody who's listening, because we do have a lot of people who listen, you know, from across the country, and I think oh, yeah. we get a lot of swimming fans. Listen to this one. This is okay. It's 1968 when this is being written. To the girl swimmers from California's golden land, the future always looks good, perhaps because they have sheltered themselves so from the present. They come from where the hot winds blow and the divorce rate far exceeds (laughs) the national, where one person in 38 lives in a trailer and where the misplaced children from broken homes gather. Oh, my God. It's just amazing. But for the girls, there are only the blue pools filled in the season, their hair bleached by the chlorine and scorched by the sun into strands of gold tinsel, while their deep brown bodies still carry reminders of body fat. So much you can never write again. (laughs) (laughs) They will go through the consolidated high schools, and nobody will ask them out for Saturday night's dance or the drive in movie and a burger on the strip. Because they have no time. Swimming is their life and they are unconscious of all but its demands.
1: Yeah. I mean that's some that's some it's, great riding there too. It's
0: though. fantastic. <laughs> offensive in 2023. Yeah, but right. Fantastic. And you're right. The, the quotes in it are just incredible. And I'll include a link to this in the show notes for this yeah. episode, but it is such a great reminder as people read the book that this was kind of a different time and a different sensibility, but there are still some really great lessons for today. And I, I'm curious to know what you would say those lessons would be. What are the big takeaways for you from this project?
1: Yeah, I'm always. Just- challenged on life lessons because I think they're so different for each person. Each person takes things differently. But certainly perseverance. Um, getting through the the dauntless challenges and just taking it time one at a step at a time, focus on that. And there's a great part in there where Don sholander we talked about him earlier, the great swimmer from 64, gets a 68 Olympics. And because of the way the start is arranged, he totally loses his focus. Here's a guy who was four-time gold medal champion. And he writes about it in really searing detail about how it happened. And that was a big lesson to me is, and if you're a coach, here's a lesson I thought of. And I played sports too. A lot of times the coaches don't think about before the meet, leading say walking onto the field or the arena where are you coming from what are you walking through and then when you get there what are you going to experience well for shorelander that whole process just threw him for a loop and I think that in other cases uh, debbie had a couple of cases where she was sick the morning of her first uh because the food was horrible in mexico City and she was just able to fight through that illness regain her focus and then go in the pool and win so to me that was maybe the biggest lesson of it all you know it wasn't six six ways to start your day every day it was keep that edge and keep that focus and just you've got to block the world out uh, it yeah. was worse in those days where the distractions were so now it's much more managed and at every level of athletics but um Certainly, professional and Olympic athletics. Yeah. May I, I off- May I
0: offer one lesson for you that I got out of it? Uh-huh. My my big takeaway is um, that your book is not really about swimming. Right. Your book, to me, is about community, and it is communities who create the opportunities and the support for people to pursue dreams like at Olympics. And to me, finding out what Sherm Shavor did to everything from um, <laughs> kind of hacking his way through coaching um, mm-hmm. to Actually building a pool and starting a business to facilitate that pool so the kids would have an opportunity and a place to go swim whenever he wanted them to be swimming. Um, creating that opportunity, finding kids who, without some financial support, even if it was a part-time job, wouldn't have had an opportunity that changed their lives. And maybe they didn't become, you know, an Olympic champion, but maybe they went to college. and maybe it was swimming right. that opened that door to go to college. I mean, you talk about changing lives and and he created the community to be able to do it and and that is really how how those people are able to achieve those great goals
1: yeah and it wasn't just Arden hills it was all the pools around them now they see this example and now all of them are swimming harder so the the level just keeps going up and up and up and uh, the competition and they keep turning out great results so yeah that that is it does take a community it takes everybody working together and resilient but there were conflicts too lots of conflicts, mm-hmm. and um Sue Peterson, who talked about to been um, uh, known as Sue in the headlines as a ten year old swimmer. That's how famous she was. Well, Debbie comes along and and kind of knocks her off the perch. And, you know, Chavard writes in his book, Sue is no longer the queen. So he gets into it with her mother several times, mm-hmm. and that story's in there too. So all of these things, like I said, every situation's different. But if you can maintain that focus and get those distractions out of there, then you then you can be a champion if you got right. the
0: t- yeah, no, they're, they're wonderful backstories. And and uh, the story behind the story is usually the most interesting story. <laughs> right, right. And he certainly was a big part of the stories of many of the, the household names that we've known over the years. It is funny when you think about looking ahead to next summer's Olympics in Paris and looking at our modern day swimmers, whether it's Katie Ledecky or, you know, uh, Michael Phelps over the years, what a different experience they all had.
1: Yeah, well, again, they have, I would say they're more groomed from an early age to, you know, accept the mantle of what they're doing. And of course, they still have problems and slip ups. We know what Phelps certainly did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, if you look at a guy like Mark Spitz, um, great line about him when he was in Indiana, one of the he would constantly say things that were so inappropriate. I don't think that would happen today. because <laughs> No. But when he went into uh, Houston, it would happen
0: once. <laughs> yeah.
1: He went and he went into Houston. Uh, for the Nationals in 1968, a couple of months before the Olympics. And he just wiped everybody out. And what does he focus on in the press conference? How crummy the pool is. You know, this pool, and I've got a better pool bag, Arden Hills. What's the deal here? And you know, what do you think the Houston press is going to write? Yeah, what, right. the, what a jerk. Well, then he goes to Chicago for the Olympic trials. And I've been in that pool in Chicago. And it was kind of a joke. It was like a city pool. You know, with it for the Olympic trials, for God's sake. It it wasn't a good pool. And it was in a working class neighborhood, which probably people didn't like. I don't know. But he makes a point out of saying it's a working class neighborhood, blue collar neighborhood, and all these guys coming there to watch it. Uh, But it was sold out. A lot of great fans there. But he makes a point again, what it's all political. That's why this pool, that's why we swam here. It's all politics, and this pool is not up to standards. So one of the one of his teammates at Indiana once said, you know, we figured out about Mark was some people are born without a hand or some people don't have a sense of humor. Mark Spitz had no tact. And <laughs> it came up time and again. And, and he paid every price for it. Yeah. Even after his fame in 72. The press didn't give him much quarter. And anytime yeah, they he something, they would jump all over him.
0: Yeah. My um my grandmother used to have a phrase, she say, Well, she doesn't suffer from humility, does she? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of reminds me no you didn't talk to mark in this book correct
1: no i entered i tried to reach him and uh he never never uh, responded and um he did write a book or co-wrote i mm-hmm. had a book ghost written with him i get ghost written for him but he kind of calls it his biography so that's yeah. what he, his story and there's well, a Spitz,
0: lot you lost out this would have been a fun that would have been a fun interview you should have it done. would have
1: been it would have yeah been.
0: so you, how long did you spend writing this
1: about two and a half years, I'd say, um, you know the, re- the research is the big part, and of course, it, the COVID came after I started yeah. it, so you know, I had to do all the interviews by phone and kind of slowed the process down.
0: Yeah, so I mean, are you going to do another one? like well what, what do you how are you filling your time these days?
1: Victory in the pool, too? Well, actually, I mainly do documentary films. I've done eight documentary films, mainly about California history and our region's history, and um, we are going to do one. On the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. That's fascinating. So we're going to start that in uh, probably September and uh, go after that. So that'll be a big thing. And yeah, we, I've got some ideas for other books that I'm kind of weighing right now. So
0: yeah,
1: Definitely. This rabbit
0: hole you went down is fantastic. And the book is victory in the pool. It's really, really good. And uh, I wish you great success. I know you've had a couple of book signings recently that have been standing room only. And you've had yes. a couple of the, the Olympians who are are mentioned in the books telling their stories. And and it's it's just, it's a lot of fun to look back yes. and to see how far we've come.
1: It's wonderful to have Debbie and Jeff since, well, Debbie's in Reno and Jeff lives here and they, but they just love it. They go in there telling tell yeah. them, it's like, home week right and, all, and the other funny thing is or great thing is because they both coached a lot of kids swimming debbie and jeff both did and now the kids that they taught are coming to see them bringing their kids with them right so, um, it's great to see and you say it's a community well the whole community's kind of reuniting and i really want to get sacramento's name out there that this was a great thing and also some way to honor and commemorate these swimmers and Shavor. i don't want them to be forgotten to history
0: yeah, and it it is interesting to see how certain sports really originate in different parts of the country for good reason. And for California, we had we had all the right things to be con- have that swimming culture really develop. And certainly, it is across the country now. But the California rich in that swimming history, and and this is where a lot of these champions were born.
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Great. Well, what's a good way for people to uh, find out about some of the book events and things you're doing, and and to get a hold um, of a copy of the book?
1: Yeah, they can go on my website, which is BillGeorge1, the number one dot com, uh, or my Facebook. I put most of my things on Facebook appearances. So I try to keep that. I do keep that up to date. So uh, if they want to see it. And they just uh, contact me. Uh, I think I'm in the phone book or just Google me and you'll see my <laughs> phone number and uh, or email me and I'll speak to anybody anytime. So I, I love just, it. meaning people. Especially young younger people, so uh, it's it's been really fun to see them all come out and kind of game. Debbie usually brings her three gold medals with Oh her. yeah, <laughs> Jeff brings her his gold medals, and it really is you know touching history. And these people are living legends.
0: One last question: Are you a swimmer? No. No. Okay. No,
1: I was. Uh, I remember my one swimming incident. I was a football player, and so, but I was at the Park District. I grew up in Chicago. The weather you alluded to. Yeah. And, um, you know, swimming in the lake was fine. But once I remember going down to the field house and the coach or said, "Well, get in that pool and that chlorine in that pool and that smell that indoor swimming environment was not for me. So no, I didn't get swimming.
0: <laughs> well, you know, Sherm wasn't a swimmer either. And it worked out That's right. for him. So <laughs> so there's that.
1: <laughs> there's that.
0: Well, thank you so much, Bill. This has just been a real pleasure. And I could talk to you all day about this. Thank you. Well, we did it. We hit half a million downloads for the Dying to Ask podcast in just over 200 episodes. That is a big, big deal for a podcast that is not called Smartless, Armchair Expert, or hosted by Oprah. We are none of those things. but we are very successful because of all of you who listen. And it's because you leave those ratings and reviews, which only take a second to do. And it's because you take a moment to share the show, texting it to your friend if there's an episode that maybe resonated with you and you think somebody else would get something out of it. That is actually how shows grow because people then tend to forward it along. It's basically like a chain letter from the 70s or the 80s. If you ever took part in that, you used to keep me up at night when I forgot to forward the chain letter on. But uh, anyway, that is like, it, in very layman's terms, how podcasts become very successful. <laughs> so again, a huge thanks to everybody who has helped that show grow. I hope you'll check out Bill George's new book. It's called Victory in the Pool, and you can get it anywhere books are sold. Thank you for listening this week, and we'll see you next time on the Dying to Ask podcast.